Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on May 13th, 2021 with Grant Williams. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So thanks everybody for joining. Uh, I am absolutely excited to have this conversation because it's not just with a, uh, a capable, thoughtful investment commentator, it's also with a friend. Uh, so I've had the chance to get to know Grant over the last almost 10 years. And uh, he's, he's not only a, a gentleman and a scholar, but he's a, he's a good human being and, uh, and a friend. So I'm, I'm really pleased and looking forward to this conversation. So uh, Grant, thanks for joining me. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and first do the quick advertising. We're going to shorten the advertising now. Um, so obviously today we have Grant. Um, last week I had, or excuse me, the week before I had Chad Foster who brought along his dog Sarge, but Chad wrote a book called Blind Ambition. Really interesting story. A person who went blind in his twenties and the idea of, uh, seeing that as a positive and developing a different form of ambition, etc. Uh, Chad was a really interesting person. And so that, that replay is available. And then I began this summer series, if you will, or the summer or the mid-year series of the Think for Yourself webinar with Mike Rogers, a former congressman out of Michigan who was responsible for the U.S. intelligence budget for years. And he's the guy who was behind the U.S. quest to stop Huawei from installing 5G equipment in many of the U.S. partners and allies. Uh, and so he ran around to the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., and convince those governments not to use Huawei for 5G equipment in their countries. Uh, so that was one of his causes, but he, he commented a lot on the US-China rivalry and intelligence, et cetera. And so of course there was a, a whole spring series before then of 10 guests and before that a fall series of 10 guests and before that a, a last year's spring series of, of 10 guests. Um, and those are all available. Um, and of course I wanna recommend my book, uh, which is the reason I started this, uh, Think for Yourself. Um, in fact, Grant is mentioned in there about some of his thoughts on passive investing. So uh, not only do you get the book, but you get to hear from some of the folks who've been on the podcast series. Um, and of course, those that want to get invited to the webinars uh, and participate live, uh, that is available to anyone who's a supporting patron of this uh, endeavor. So with that as background, Grant, thanks for joining me. Vikram, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's, uh, it's always nice to spend time with you, no matter, even if it's virtually. Yeah, well, it's not as good as in person. And in fact, I was just recalling when we first met. Um, I don't know if you remember, this has been probably almost a decade ago, but I think it was what, on the roof of the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, Hotel right. in Singapore right. with that infinity pool, where I think we were debating the future of China with Kyle Bass, among other people. We were. Kyle, Kyle was, uh, was uh, his attitude was a little less rigidly formed at that point, um, but it was, uh, it was <laughs> yeah. a fascinating conversation, that's for sure. Yeah, well, not only that, but it became a, sort of the origin of our uh, communicating and, and keeping in touch and sharing ideas, and I've really enjoyed that, so, so, uh, so thank you. Uh, but look, Grant, a lot of the people who will be listening don't know your background. They don't know uh, about how you got to where you are. So let's start there, right? I mean, when you were a young kid in the UK, did you think, oh, when I get to be older, I want to be an investment commentator. I'm going to be someone who's a media <laughs> personality. Is that, or, or, or what was it? Like, I, no, I think, I think like, like every good English boy in the 1970s, I was obviously going to be a footballer. I was going to play in the, the precursor to the Premier League. Um, that was always my dream was to be a footballer. And I, and I was a pretty decent 
footballer, but not decent enough, unfortunately. So that, yep. that dream that dream was extinguished. It never died. It was extinguished quite, That's quite right. early on in my life. But, um, but uh, you know, I've, I've told the story before, but it's, it's, uh, it's funny. From actually quite a young age, I wanted to be a foreign exchange dealer. Now, I had no idea what a foreign exchange dealer was. But that's what I wanted to be. And I wanted to be one of those because of um, my Uncle Harry. And Uncle Harry was, a, was a, a buddy of my dad's who would, you know, come around for dinner parties with my folks back in the 1970s. And um, he was just one of those uncles who was just great fun. You know, he always, he yeah. would teach me card tricks and he would always have a great story. And, you know, as a kid banished to his bedroom, you'd kind of listen through that. And it was always Uncle Harry's jokes that everyone was laughing at. So he was kind of my my hero. And so I wanted to be like him. And, and I, you know, I, I remember asking my dad what it was that he did. And I was told he was a foreign exchange student. So I was like, you know what, that's what I want to be. Uh, <laughs> sure. And, and so I, went, you know, I kind of went off and found out what it was. And, um, you know, so I, I, I had this idea that I wanted to be in finance. So I, you know, became interested in finance and started to learn about it and what have you. And, and, um, you know, quite by, quite by chance, really, I ended up, um, with a with a job in, in a in a back office in the Eurobond Settlements Department at, at a merchant bank called Robert Fleming, straight out of school, mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, it wasn't foreign exchange, but it was it was basically you know back office support for the traders in the Japanese equity markets in the mid nineteen eighties when oh, you know this yeah. was this was just a crazy market. Now I I had no understanding of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't recognize it for what it was at the time, but uh, I, I kind of talked and and inveigled my way onto the trading desk. I, I had a bit of good fortune when the entire trading team was poached by uh, Bearing Securities before ah. before they went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were there were kind of roles available that they needed to fill in a hurry, and and for whatever reason they they gave me a shot at it, which was yeah. incredibly fortunate for me. Um, but also, uh, you know, talk about being thrown in at the deep end. I mean, I really was not savvy about what was going on and had to pay very careful attention and learn some horrendously expensive mistakes, both for myself and for the company. Yep. Um, but, you know, I, I, I picked it up and uh, I, I, I keep saying that I, I was kind of lucky in that while I still had the training wheels on, um, we had the 87 crash. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I, it 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 just stunned me what happened that day. But it was a, it was a great lesson for me, and and I think it shaped the majority of my career. You know, understanding that that a twenty two percent drawdown in a day is out there somewhere waiting for you if you get carried away, has I think um, been really helpful for me. Now, some people would say that having that experience has been a, a, a disaster, particularly. Yeah, over the last 10 years, which, which is, is potentially true. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, over the course of my career, that experience has stood me in, in really good stead in terms of avoiding huge drawdowns when things get kind of frothy. Yeah. Um, and you know, once, I, once I was on that path, I, I ended up being offered a chance to go to Japan very early on, back in 1989. So I, I went there for three or four years and caught the end of the Nikkei uh, and real estate bubbles down in, in Tokyo. Um, and then, uh, you know, watched for three years as, as everything just kind of ground lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I've, my, my job has taken me all around the world. I spent time in New York, in, in uh, Sydney, in Singapore, in Hong Kong. Yep. Um, 
and I, and I, I enjoyed every single one of them and, and was learning different skills and trading different asset classes. Um, and it, it just kind of, it, it was something that, that I felt was in my blood. And then back in 20, probably 2014, I guess, yep. we, we had this idea to, to found Real Vision. And I'd been, I'd been writing uh, a, a, an investment letter called Things That Make You Go Home for some time. Um, yeah, so I want to ask you about that too, yeah. Grant. Sorry to interrupt, but I'd love to hear about what, why'd you decide to start writing? Every Everyone who's written yeah. and writes regularly has a story as to how they got into it well, and what spurred yeah, it or what caused yeah, it. And yeah. I'd love to hear your story. There's a there's a theme emerging here. You know, I I, 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 I had no great um, desire to be a writer. I, 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 it wasn't something I felt like I had a great talent for at school or anything like that. I wasn't a frustrated writer in any way. Um, but through a, through a whole series of, of circumstances, I, I ended up in a job where I was, for the first time in my career, I wasn't um, a risk taker, a trader. I was, I was a sales trader. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was, I was there trying to generate order flow. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's not easy to walk into that job when you don't already have a client base. It's a tough thing to build up yeah. uh, when, you, when you're in your 40s. So, um, so I, you know, I knew a lot of people, fortunately, for the, the relationships I've built over the years. And, and I was just trying to really get a handle on, on how I could not, not even add value so much as, as not waste people's time. You know, what, yep. what, what information could I give to people that wasn't a waste of their time? Because I did a kind of quick survey about how they got information and what happened. And it, it just seemed to me that they were being swamped with information from every corner. Um, but they really read very little of it. They, you know, they read people they trusted and, 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 and everything else was really kind of people producing it were wasting their time. So I didn't want to waste my time. And I certainly didn't want to waste theirs. So I, I kind of came up with this piece that was, that I used to write every day at that point that mm -hmm. really was about stories that perhaps weren't in, in the mainstream, were, were perhaps off to the side. This was you know, the early days of things like Zero Hedge. There, there were a few places out there where you could get news and, and stories that weren't really getting coverage in the mainstream media before it all went kind of ad driven and very clickbaity. There was, there was some really interesting information out there. And so I, you know, I set about trying to pass that and then add my own thoughts as to, as to why this stuff was important and what the potential ramifications of it may be for markets, for currencies, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing that as a, as a daily note. And, and I, you know, I, I, I guess I injected my personality into it. I, it wasn't a, I couldn't write just a dry, boring thing. I kind of made it, <laughs> yeah. tried to make it interesting and, and engaging to read. And, and, it, and it kind of worked. And, and it, it just kind of, it just caught on. And the, and the more people read it, the more they kind of shared it around. And the more it got shared around, the more people wanted to sign up to receive it. And it just kind of took on a life of its own without any, I wish I could say there was some grand strategic plan, but yeah. I'd be lying to you. Yeah. Um, and that was all under another umbrella. So this was under a, yeah. a different firm. Well, no, that, that was on my own. I was just writing it in my spare time, frankly. I'll, I'll, well, that no, originally, yeah, it was it was a daily note to clients of the firm, and then you know I, I left that firm, and um, and just kind of continued doing it on my own, just to stay in touch. I, and I wasn't going to continue it. And when I left, I, I emailed people and said, "That's my last day. It's been a great ride. Thanks very much. Stay in touch." Yeah. yeah. And you know, by the time I got home, I had hundreds of emails saying, "If you keep writing this note, let me keep me on the list. Yeah, make sure you list." So I just thought, "Oh, this would be a bit of fun." So it really was, it really was that okay. simple and it just kind of mushroomed from there. 
Yeah. Well, sometimes being open to opportunity is half the, uh, half the battle, right? Just, yeah, absolutely right. So, all right. So I cut you off when you were talking about real vision. Uh, the family- no, you didn't. You, you, you just got me back on the right chronological order. That's right. I, <laughs> I, I, I jumped ahead. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so again, quite by, uh, by circumstance, uh, Raul and I met up, Raul Powell and I uh, met up in Spain for dinner and just sat down and, and we were talking about media. I'm talking about finance and, you know, how, how lame it was and how poorly served the public was and, you know, what a disservice uh, people were done by the media, particularly after 2008. And it was just one of those ideas that we've all had a million of them over dinner and over drinks. And at three o'clock in the morning, you've got this great sure. idea to burn the world down. And then when you wake up the next morning, all you want is a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea. It's just, you know, those ideas just kind of disappear into the ether. But this one didn't, you know, it, it, it didn't disappear. We, we kind of circled back on it. And then we, we met up in Hong Kong for a couple of days and brainstormed about how we could do it. And, you know, again, neither of us really had a, a clue what we were doing. And, and our t- other two co-founders, Remy Tito and Damien Horner, similarly, we, we had no experience in the stuff, but we just felt like it was a good idea. and felt like, you know, we'd figure it out. We'd find a way to, to do it. And, and, and if we couldn't, we couldn't. Yep. Uh, and we did. You know, we, 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 we got a bunch of obstacles put in our way in terms of how to produce this content and potential costs. And, you know, and there was always a solution. And we, and we figured out the solutions amongst mm-hmm. ourselves and, and um, you know, built a platform that, that I think we can all be very proud of. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's been going for seven years now. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, become, it's become, you know, something, as I said, that, that, that we, we hoped it might become one day. And, yep. you know, and it's taken some different turns along the way, which every business does. Sure. But, um, you know, it's, it's something that I'll always be very proud of being a co-founder of. So I have to ask seemingly irrelevant question, but why was Real Vision founded in the Cayman Islands? Was this a lifestyle? Oh, no, was no, this Raoul no, 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 doing? No. What, why did this happen? Why, no, no, why no. there? It's, not it's, exactly uh, media metropolis of the world. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's, again, I, I, I wish there was some great answer for you, but um, uh, Raoul and Remy were spending about six months a year there. Raoul had a place in Little Cayman, so he would spend six months a year there and six months in Spain. Yep. Um, we're all uh, Brits or Europeans, rather. Remy's French, uh, but don't hold that against him. Um, and so, you know, the, going into the US tax system was really not a sensible move for us. Gotcha. Cayman Islands is on the right time zone. It's on the Eastern time zone. We knew that most of our customers and most of our potential interviewees were going to be US-based. So it, it made sense to be in that time zone. But, but for us, it, it didn't make sense to be in the US uh, tax uh, net. Sure. And so the Cayman Islands you know, just kind of ticks all the boxes. It really wasn't any more complicated than that. It, 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 wasn't, it. Um, it wasn't designed in any way. Got it. And then recently you sort of decided to move beyond your role at, at Real Vision to sort of branch back out, I would say, onto your own. I mean, you've always had the stuff you've been doing on the side, the, uh, the newsletter, et cetera. But uh, was there motivation or some sort of catalyst for that? No, I, th- I think I think like anything, you know, everything has its natural end. And and, and for me, you know, I, I I absolutely loved building Real Vision and loved the part I played in it and loved doing all the interviews I did and met some extraordinary people and built some yeah. terrific relationships, you know, through those. Um, but I, you know, I kind of I kind of reached the point where I I I I'd done what I'd done and 
the other, you know, the other founders wanted to take the platform in a, in a slightly different direction to me. And it was, you know, there was never any contention about it. It, it was, it was always one man, one vote. And when sure. there's four of you and, it, and the votes kind of three to one and go in a certain direction, I, I mm have -hmm. no problems with that. It's, it's perfectly fine by me. Yep. Um, and, it, and so it, we kind of reached that point and it, it just felt like I just, fi I just finished uh, a series of 12 interviews uh, called in conversation with which, uh, you know, every one of which I absolutely loved. Yeah. And it just, it just, all this kind of happened at what seemed like a natural place for me to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to step away. This is, yep. I, I've, I've done the body of work I've done. I'm extremely proud of it. I've enjoyed it. Yep. Um, and, and it seemed, it just felt like the right time for me. So I just yep. kind of okay. stepped away and went back to, back to my own auspices. And, and, you know, I, I look, I'm very happy uh, being my own boss and being my own man and being able to, do the things that I think are important and I think are valuable and, and do them in a way that, that kind of sits comfortably with me. And, 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 you know, that's, um, that's been a, a great, a, a great change for me and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Fabulous. All right. Well, Grant, thanks for that long, um, but thorough, uh, background because I think nope, it's helpful. Too thorough. For, <laughs> no, it's perfect. I just, it's nice for people that don't know you as well. I mean, I knew a large portion of that story, but let's get into this sort of the meat of the world we're in. Grant, you've always had an ability to help me, uh, you know, think clearly or clearer, maybe, uh, you know, than, than I was before the conversation, um, right? To just sort of try to put things in context and make sense of the world. And when I look at the world today, I'm confused. Uh, there's a lot of cross currents. You know, I we can go through them and we'll talk about them. But like, you know, is it inflation or deflation, or is it inflation then deflation, or is it deflation then inflation then back to deflation? Is it? Uh, am I thinking about it wrong? Is that the wrong way to think about it? Yeah. You know, debt levels, Bitcoin, Elon Musk. I mean, there's all these things out there. So I want to get into that with you. Um, so let's just let's just begin with inflation and deflation. I mean, yesterday we had a nice big number printed in the United States. Of, oh, there's inflation. There's inflation. Um, and some people are quick to say, well, that's transitory. That's just going to pass. Grant, you know, look, Grant, take the denominator into account, right? I mean, the denominator yeah. a year ago, pandemic lockdown, of course, prices were low and you're going to have prices going back to normal. You're going to have natural inflation just from a base effect. But it's something more than that. When I look at supply chains being disrupted and rebuilt, when I see demand coming up, when I see wages actually rising, unemployment high, but people, companies having trouble finding people, like there's there's something else going on. Help me make sense of inflation versus deflation. Well, I, I think it's, I think that question is arguably the most important one that anyone who has any kind of investment portfolio needs to think about right now. Um, and when you ask questions, is it inflation, is it deflation, is it inflation, then deflation? The answer is, it's probably all of them. Um, but you have to understand what's important to you particularly. And that really comes down to your time preference. So if you're a trader, then you kind of need to get the sequencing right. You need to work out okay, are we still in deflation? Is this inflation transit? You need to worry about all those things and you need to try and trade them correctly if that's what you're trying to do. If you're an investor, it's, it's very different to that. Um, if you've been an investor for the last, any point in the last 20, 30, 40 years, you've essentially had a deflationary environment in which to invest. And so a, a portfolio that's set up 
to 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 act well under deflationary conditions has served you very well over those days. If you if you'd put money into a, an essentially deflationary portfolio back in 1980, yes, you'd have had a few scares along the way. You'd had scares in 87. You'd had scares in 99, 98, even in some cases in, in 2000s, obviously. But if you just sat there and invested for deflation for the last 40 years, you'd have done extremely well. You'd, you'd have had no problems. Yeah. And so Grant, let me, let me just interrupt very briefly here. What do, you, what do you think caused that big deflationary trend? Would you point to globalization, technology, all of the above? What yeah, sort of- it's all of the above, but, it, but it's, also, it's also financialization, securitization, uh, it's technology, it's, it's the, 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 the kind of ever-creeping um, ownership of markets by the central banks. It's, 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 that, it's that reaction function in terms of lowering interest rates every chance you get. Um, you know, it's, it is all of the above. We've we've seen a, a group of conditions, um, both from demographics to debt, to interest rates to technology. I mean, it, it's it's been the perfect storm for deflation. Um, and and of course, we haven't had deflation. But if your portfolio was set up for deflation, yeah. i.e., you had a you had a strong bond component in it, you, you've done very very well. Yeah. Um, but if you've if you've done very very well by definition, and you've had that portfolio for forty years you're probably in your 60s now. And so your needs are suddenly very, very different. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is because of this, uh, this reach for yield, there are a lot more baby boomers who are retiring that have the largest exposure they've ever had in their lifetime to equities right now when they're retiring, uh, which is, as you know, a, a very dangerous thing mm-hmm. to, to be set up for. Yeah. Now, if you've just invested over the last... 10 years, for example, again, you've had incredible tailwinds. Um, your portfolio has done really, really well. And the, the danger you face there is that you think, well, this is just how markets work. And I don't need to worry about <laughs> yeah. inflation. And I can just continue to do this. I can continue to buy the dip and all will be well. Um, I suspect that will prove to be a very dangerous assumption to make. Now, mm-hmm. if you stand here today and you hear all these kind of cross currents and all this noise about inflation and transitory and deflation still here. And look, the, the biggest problem you've got is you've got some of the smartest people in the world on both sides of this. There's no consensus. You know, you've got Lacey Hunt and Dave Rosenberg, staunch deflationists still. You've got the Russell Napiers of the world uh, talking about inflation. And both of them make incredibly strong cases for yeah. that. So, so what do you do? And, and to me, you, you, you can't just pick the one guy you think and follow him. I think you have to listen to both sides, decide A, for yourself what you think the most likely future is, and B, understand, okay, what if? Because if your bet is deflation to continue, then you probably don't need to adjust your portfolio too much if you, you know, if you, if you, as long as you're, as I said, you're an investor, not a trader. Um, but you have to think to yourself then, what if I'm wrong? What if it is inflation? Because the chances are, if you're wrong, it could be catastrophic for your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Catastrophic. Um, and so that's a very big, big risk to take. Now, there's no need to say you can't take that risk, but at least understand it. Understand how big a risk it is and, and the ramifications of being wrong. If you think inflation is the likely path, again, you you need to set your portfolio up arguably 
completely differently to how it's set up right now, which is going to involve a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of, a lot of trades, a lot of shuffling around. And again, what if you're wrong? And I would probably say that if, you're, if you set up for inflation and you're wrong, it won't necessarily be catastrophic for your portfolio. You, you might have a, a couple of down years. You might have you know, some pain. But as long as your time horizon is long enough, then I think over time, betting on inflation is a much more sensible way to go at this point while understanding the risks of being wrong. And yeah. that to me is, 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 the, is the process that I think people need to go through. Understand sure. what you think, listen to the smart people on both sides, understand yeah. which case makes most sense to you. And then is my portfolio set up correctly? What if I'm wrong? And yeah. if you go through that, look, at least if you understand what the risks are, it gives you a much better chance of recognizing them if they start to materialize and having a plan to adjust your portfolio. And that's really all any of us can do because we're all just guessing sure. about an uncertain future. Sure. So I totally agree with the process that you're suggesting. I mean, I, it's sort of the essence of what I try to articulate in the think for yourself sort of framework. Um, right. But, um, you know, one of the sections of the book actually that I talk where I, where I talk about some of your work is around this idea of passive investing and the impact that is having on people's comfort, if you will, with risk. Um, I think it sort of pretends to offer a less risky way for exposure, when in some cases, one may make a very valid argument that in fact, actually passive investing, which is buying the market is not really what you're buying, that you're getting some sort of market cap weighted indices. That's a de facto momentum play of hidden based on flows, et cetera, um, rather than fundamentals. And that disconnect will eventually break. I mean, it's sort of, it's, so how important is this sort of passive investing religion in this logic of why deflationary environments have worked? Does it have to do with index composition? Uh, and, and what do you think about passive investing today? Is it a risk to worry about? It's, it's a hugely important. Let's go back to this inflation deflation thing, because it, that's a potential secular change. And, and the kind of beauty of it, in a way, is that it's a 180 degree shift in, mm-hmm. in the, the main force affecting markets. Yep. And if that's the case, it ought to make it a lot simpler to work out what you need to be long on, i.e. everything you were short of before, yeah, you know, sure. pretty much as, as, as a very broad stroke. <laughs> it, the opposite yeah. stuff Switch. should work, yep. right? Yep. Um, now, passive has been an incredible, uh, had an incredible tailwind. And it, and it sounds so innocuous, I mean, passive investing. It sounds almost sleepy, right? What could go wrong if you're passive? I mean, there's no, there's yeah. no danger here. Um, and there hasn't been. And that is probably the danger. There hasn't been any dangers. Buy the dip has worked. And a lot of people have got comfortable and there's been an enormous amount of money flowing into that strategy and it's worked. And the more it's worked, the more money has flowed in and the more it's reinforced itself, which which has been great. Again, it's been great. However, if you do start to believe that we are about to enter, you know, through the mirror, if you like, and everything's gonna be the reverse of what we've seen, then, just on a, on, a, on a standalone basis, it's likely that passive is not going to work as well as it has in, a, in the environment we've had. And what that does is tip you back towards active management, which has been, mm-hmm. you know, performed very, very poorly. And we've all watched that. Um, yeah. Growth versus value, 
value has been appalling growth's done really really well so all these things and, and if you look at markets in the last six months or so you you are starting to see the opposite things start to play out you know you're seeing inflationary trades work you're seeing deflationary trades not work you're seeing growth start to at the very least top out if you pay closer attention you'll see there are a lot of racy growth yeah. stocks sectors which are crashing yeah. and you're starting to see value perform i won't say very well but perform better than it has done for a long long time and that you know that's kind of the first clue now is that are people going too early and will that go back the other way it's possible of course it is but the longer it stays and the more prints we get in the cpi and the ppi like we've had this week and the jobless numbers and we're seeing all these numbers that the fed are at great pains to say are transitory um you know base effects this base effects that we've we've seen all the all the arguments for this and we don't know if they're right or wrong yet but again if they're wrong if this isn't transitory which people much smarter than me will make a great case for why that's not the case and this and this is not transitory uh, you know we saw today mcdonald's are going to raise the minimum wage for 35,000 workers right if they're wrong, if the Fed's wrong and this inflation sticks, and remember, inflation is, is mostly an, an expectations game. You don't even need inflation. You need people to expect inflation, and that's, that's enough to mm-hmm. cause all kinds of problems. If they're wrong, again, it will be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. It'll be catastrophic for the bond market. It'll be catastrophic for the equity market. It'll be catastrophic for portfolios set up, assuming that the Fed is always right and are mm-hmm. big on the markets. So we're at a really important inflection point here in just about every facet of the investment spectrum. Yep. And, and that's why I think it's so important for people to think for themselves, right? You're <laughs> absolutely right. It's important at this point, yeah. probably more than it's been in the last 10, 15 years, maybe longer, yeah. to, to not be intellectually lazy and to outsource your thinking yeah. to talking heads and people who have been right recently, so therefore they'll always be right. It's so important right now to be a critical thinker yeah. because you, the future of your portfolio depends on some decisions you're going to make right now. And, and look, if you get them wrong, you get them wrong, but at least don't get them wrong and sit there in five years time going, man, I wish I'd yeah. spent more time thinking about this stuff because I made dumb mistakes. Yeah. Well, look, you, you raised a couple of topics that I want to get deeper into with you here, Grant specifically when you say some of the growthier side of things. I know in some of your newsletters, you've mentioned you're, you're thinking around a, a company called Tesla. Um, and, uh, but that ties into, uh, let's even broaden it to the idea of like the SPACs that are very growthy sort of current new age uh, dynamics, uh, some of which are actually quite compelling logics and there just may be too many of them, et cetera. Um, and then what you might argue, which is the sort of technology is in fact changing the world. That actually, this is the new, new, new thing. <laughs> and uh, we need to just let that digitization process go. So this is growth, very growthy growth, et cetera. It's, you know, everything from SPACs on space. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of focus on this, this, this world here. This is the, it's the Kathy Woods of the world, right? It's sort of, arc is the new way is that what you see as cracking right now is that, is that what you're referencing or thinking at 
it looks definitely cracking. You can see it. You can see this stuff cracking. Um, I, w- I would I would urge people listening to to Google something called the Goldman Sachs Non Profitable Technology Index. Um, right. This is an index that that Goldman's have put together for tech companies that are not profitable, uh, and it's extraordinary. I mean, it is truly extraordinary. You want to see it? Yeah, you want to see it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You can imagine what it looks like, but seeing it in in, in black and white is is really quite remarkable. Um, and that's all fine, right? It's it's absolutely fine for companies to trade to 10 times revenues right we're, we're now almost double the number number of components of the s p 500 which are trading at greater than 10 times sales remarkable right um and that's fine that's absolutely fine while that lasts but when that turns again it's a it's a very dangerous place to be and you know all of this is really predicated on on the availability of unlimited amounts of free money the age of zero interest rates and the, the age of unlimited credit um, have facilitated all this. And people have been willing to invest money in companies that lose billions of dollars because it's free and it's all about growth, not profits. Um, but one of the problems of a return from passive investing towards value investing is that, that word, value. Um, there's not a lot of value in companies that are you know, constantly burning billions of dollars every quarter in search of future growth if we are going into the world we are potentially going into. And, and those companies tend to re-rate both quickly and dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly, you know, the number of zombie companies, that, that this is companies that, that can't fund their ongoing operations through cash flow. They have, to, they have to roll over debt and borrow money to be able to fund their everyday operations. And that's, again, that's been doable in the age of zero interest rates. But these things, unfortunately, tend to happen very quickly. And I think we've seen in, for example, the SPAC uh, space, we've seen that happen. We've seen a lot of these SPACs um, fall. And and the majority of them now, I think, are below their launch price. We've seen the the massive outflows that ARC has seen and and a dramatic underperformance of ARC versus the S&P 500. And, you know, ARC is the innovative technology beast, yep. right? It's underperformed the S&P dramatically. Uh, and if you want a, a proxy for growth versus value, well, there you go. Yep. Um, so, you know, it, this is all starting to happen. And these are all the things that I, I know in five years time, if this does turn out to be a secular turning point, which it, it possibly could be, these are all the things that people would point back to. You know, there's a, there's a famous um, speech, not speech, but there's a famous quote from um, Scott McNeely, CEO of Sun Microsystems from back in 2000, talking about the valuation of, of his company. And with the benefit of hindsight, he says, he says to the analysts, you know, what were you thinking? Given the valuation that my company was trading on and you were all bullish on it, Here's yeah. what I've had to do. And it was, you know, I would have had to give out every single penny of my profits in dividends for 10 years. I mean, the, the list of things you would have had to do to justify that valuation, when you read them in a cold light of day with the benefit of hindsight, are preposterous. I mean, utterly preposterous. And yet, in the moment, people had no problem writing these reports and recommending the stock because the future. And he said, you know, what were you thinking? And he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And they weren't thinking. They were thinking about, growth and unlimited yep. prospects. So all these things that we're seeing now will be the Scott McNeely quotes in 10 years time. 
It'll be and, Chamath, you know, it'll be the things Chamath is saying on social media, and it'll be the things Musk is saying, and it'll be the things Kathy's saying, and all these things will come back, and it'll be, how do we know? Here's how we knew, or we should have known. Yep. Well, it's interesting when you talk about how could you justify evaluation? I always am stunned. And in fact, even in one of your more recent newsletters, you talked about the valuation of Tesla as sort of a, a sort of example of this phenomenon at work. It's it, you still feel that way about it? Yeah, look, we, we all know. I mean, if you if you strip everything out, strip any emotion about this out and look at the number of cars Tesla sells mm -hmm. and then make a case for it to be worth more than the rest of the auto industry combined. It, it does, there is no case you can make, right? That doesn't include fantastical numbers for the number of cars it will sell down the road. It, it, there is no case for this, right? Other than, you know, robo taxis and hovering cars and, and all this stuff that, you know, yeah. we've been hearing about since the Jetsons was on TV in the 1960s, right? <laughs> sure. There is no sure. rational case for this. And, and that's important because what's happening now is we are in an irrational market. We're in a, a place where because money is free, mm -hmm. the discipline that's required to invest it goes out the window. And so you can invest money in, in the promise of robo-taxis. Now, the, the, the bears on, on, on Tesla, and we'll, and we'll stick with that as an example because it is the perfect example, you know, people talk about FUD and they talk about, you know, oh, you just, you want to see this guy fail and you want to see, you know, you're just bad people and all this sort of stuff. It's nonsense. The, the, the bear case is basically very simple. The company is not worth anywhere near what you're paying for it. The prospects don't uh, make any kind of case for that valuation. It's overvalued. It's going to go much lower. Yeah. That's without any of the shenanigans with any of the C-suite leaving and the legal counsel's leaving and Elon's shenanigans and all the sure. crap that he pulls. Take all that aside. Yep. Let's look at this as a company and try and value it. It doesn't yeah. make it doesn't any work. sense. No. But the only thing that has mattered for the last number of years is the stock price. Nothing else has mattered. None of the promises about what the company is going to do have mattered. All that's mattered is the stock price. So on that basis it's been a success because the stock price has gone up. Yeah. The bear case gets stronger every quarter, um, but it doesn't matter because yep. of the stock price. And, and so, do you think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Grant, part of this is also when you talk about the stock price, it ties into this whole idea of this passive investing bubble and these flow dynamics and ESG investing is the rage. Yeah. And so I don't really care I've got a big ESG fund and I got to deploy real capital into the markets. And I can't have a portfolio as an ESG fund manager that I have to deploy and not have Tesla. In, right. So I just sort of, it's like required in that ESG. Well, fund. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You say, you, you say that and you're right, but what happens is when the re-rating begins, suddenly they don't You'd need rather to have cash. You'd rather yeah, have cash. That's right. They don't need it then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, that's, so right. that, that's, that's the important shift here okay. is that the buy the dip has worked and just follow Elon's worked. But obviously, he's now, you know, there's, there's a, a fantastic market commentator called Peter Atwater, who's become a really good friend of mine. Um, and you'll find him on Twitter. It's uh, yeah. at, at Peter underscore Atwater, A T W A T E R. And Peter follows sentiment and mood, and his his commentary has been invaluable to me over the years. Yeah. Just helping me understand the mood of the crowd and 
and what mm -hmm. that means, because generally it's the best contraindicator you can have. Yep. And he's been pointing out a lot of things recently about, you know, Musk and Tesla and Kathy and just mood and sentiment that is starting to show extremes right. and Correct. the kind yeah. of extremes that, yeah, tend to happen right before, you know, confidence is, is at its highest right before uh, it should be at its lowest. And so, you know, I, I get the feeling that along with this potential secular shift in, in inflation uh, expectations yeah. is going to be a secular shift in passive investing, and along with that, ESG, and along with that, the darling stocks and the celebrities who've, who've, yeah. who do no wrong. And no, no, there's not one person who's more at the epicenter of all that than Elon. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to Elon, but before I like to interject a fun question, Grant, I, I've had a lot of these uh, webinars, 30 something at this point, And uh, the, the feedback is people love book recommendations from my guests. So I'm curious if you've got a favorite book or a recommendation uh, that you'd oh, share yeah, with the so listeners many, and audience here. So many, I've got so many, but I, I there's a couple that, that I, I, I'm going to give you four book recommendations. It's a bit wow, greedy, okay. but, uh, but I'm going to take I'll, out, I'll, I'll out really the pen. Quickly. Yeah, go ahead. The, the first two, and, and I've been talking about these for a while now because I think that they are so important to read right now. Um, and they're both books about great, great inflations of the past. Uh, the first one is called The Dying of Money by a guy called Jens. You, you have that, do you? Yeah. So you know oh, that well, I thought, sorry, I thought you were going to go with The Death of Money. Well, that, no, that's, that's the other one. When Money Dies oh, by Adam Ferguson. Yeah, that okay. one. Um, and The Dying of Money by Jens O. Parsons. And Parsons uh, is double S, P-A-R, double S-O-N-S. -S. Now, okay. you, I think, I think um, When Money Dies is back in print. Uh, the yep. Dying of Money isn't, but you can find, I think the Von Mises Institute on the, online has a, has a PDF of it. Yep. Um, and they're, they're, they're phenomenal accounts of real life events of hyperinflations. And, and the, the takeaway really, when you read these things is it were two things. Firstly, just how quickly this happens, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we sit here and the Fed are talking about, you know, transitory and we're going to get from two to 3%. Well, they thought that inflation, you know, inside to two, three years, that's is how quickly this stuff happens. And, and the other thing that you can't help but take away is just a how confident and how much speculation was going on right yeah. before these events happened. So that when you read these books, the parallels with today are self-evident. You don't need anyone to, 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 you know, highlight paragraphs and say to you, oh, yeah, look how well. What I love about it, Grant, is when you can borrow at 1% and everything is rising at 3 to 4%, you do infinite amounts of that because yeah. there's no reason not to until yeah. suddenly that 1 turns to 5 and that 3% turns to 1% and then it's mass liquidation. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. So, so I think those two books are very important for people to read right now. Yep. Okay, um, good. And then, uh, but there's kind of other moment. The, the other two books that I would, I would point you towards, one is another finance book called The Lords of Finance. Yep. By Liaquat Ahmed, um, it's a story of the sort of, sort of interwar central bankers, the big four central banks of the world. And again, when you read that, uh, the alarm bells will be clanging in your head the, with the parallels to to modern day central bankers and the, and the problems they face. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's it's a fantastic history lesson uh, that I think will will bear great fruit for people in the years to come. And then just for uh, uh, pure enjoyment, um, I yeah. read a book. Uh, last year, I mean, sadly, the first book I read for pure enjoyment for quite some time, sadly, but um, it was it's called A Gentleman in Moscow, hmm. and it's written by a guy called Amor Tows, A M O R T O W L E S, and uh, I, I forget who recommended it to me. I think it was my friend Simon Mikhailovich. Yeah, 
Um, I'm pretty sure it was Simon, but it's the story of a, of a count in um, post-revolutionary Russia who is exiled and forced to live in a hotel in Moscow. And uh, it just tells the story of his, his life and his years living in this hotel. And it, it's a very gentle story. It's, it's, it's beautifully written. And I mean, oh. beautifully written. It's, it's okay. the, the, the prose is just magnificent. It's a wonderful story with a, with a really good ending, particularly given the financial circumstances we're in today. Um, but it's not necessarily a finance book. And, and the, the best recommendation I can give you is that I, 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 I sat reading it and I, when I finished it, I literally turned the last page and went back to the first page and started reading it again. I enjoyed oh, it so wow. much. All so, right. Uh, yeah. I'll those, put it on the there's, list. There's, I have not there's, read there's, it. There's four. There's four. <laughs> That's great. All right. How about uh, if you have any movies or miniseries that you would uh, you think have been particularly enjoyable, fun, thought-provoking, or what have you? Yeah. I, uh, look, miniseries, I'm going to... Look, we've all seen The Sopranos and The Wire yes. and all that stuff, and they're all, and they're all great. <laughs> but uh, for me, the, the original miniseries was a documentary from the 1970s called The World at War. And, world uh, at war okay the world at war it was it was like a 27 part yep documentary series made in the 1970s narrated by sir Lawrence olivier uh and it it tells the entire story of world war ii and it is absolutely it's a remarkable achievement uh hmm. every episode is jaw-dropping and the beauty of it was because it was made in the early 70s a lot of the uh soldiers who were alive for all of these things were still alive and were interviewed. So they, they interviewed sure. you know, German yeah. cool. generals and they interviewed Russians and British pilots. So it, it's the definitive history of World War II. And it is a remarkable piece of documentary storytelling. So I, I'm pretty sure you can find it out there. You'll find it on sure, I don't yeah. know where you'll find it, Amazon maybe, but it, it is, it's just fantastic. Okay. Um, and then I've just, I've just started watching something that I was recommended called Pennyworth. Which I, sounded sounded to me like um, yeah like a, a period drama like Bridgerton or Downton Abbey or something yeah but it but it wasn't that at all it's it's the it's basically the backstory to Batman's butler Alfred uh, and how he ended up working for Batman's dad but it's set in 1960s London the mm -hmm. there's a young actor who plays the lead role who is so good at hinting that he turns into michael kane in his later years this it's just it's just tremendous it's very enjoyable um it, it's completely disposable entertainment oh, but i've but I've, re I've really gotten into it over the last kind of you know, month or so all right good recommendations it's funny i think uh, a lot of the people were seeking these recommendations during the midst of the pandemic but i'm I sticking know, with it now. people love late. it so all right great. so i have a couple other questions that have come to me uh from some of the uh folks listening live but before i turn to them um we ended before talking about your book and movie recommendations with Elon Musk. He recently, I think as recently as yesterday, was talking about Bitcoin uh, and how he's not going to accept that as payment, um, which we, we can discuss that if you want. But I'm more curious. Let's use that as the, the topic that we're transitioning to here, which is cryptocurrencies. Unbelievable. It's not just the cryptocurrency dynamics of what's happening, but I think it's the look through implications slash insights. Is this a question or is this an early warning sign of loss of faith in fiat currency? Is this an early warning sign of some other deeper trend that may be underway? Or, and likely the answer is both, <laughs> I'm going to answer as far as or is it just mass speculative hysteria coming into a place 
and you know, like you and I were talking about before in a prior conversation, I mean, you've got things like this Zed Run program or Zed, I mean, they're doing digital NFT horses that people are breeding digital horses with other digital horses, racing them, generating income, and then selling horses and speculating on, on, on digital horses. Now, I might be sort of old school, <laughs> but that to me seems odd, seems a little odd. So anyway, get your thoughts on crypto, what the recent price action means. And then, you know, maybe if you got a thought on digital horses, I'd love to hear it. Well, look, I think, um, look, cryptocurrency, it, it depends who you ask is the simple answer, right? And, and, and unfortunately, in, in the world we live in today, there is, there's a great tendency towards polarization of opinion on just about everything. Everything. And, and, it's, and it's very dangerous because there's no middle ground anymore. Uh, and so, you know, cryptocurrency has, for me, been arguably the worst of that. Uh, and, it's, and it's unfortunate because look, I, as someone who uh, understands and, and appreciates the, the, the value proposition of gold, Bitcoin makes an awful lot of sense to me. I totally understand why it was created. I, I understand what it was designed to do. Um, I have my issues with it. I have questions that I haven't had answered to my satisfaction to get me completely comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think that most of it now has become about the price, about the price speculation. So I, I think Bitcoin has been kind of co-opted into, uh, into a price speculation instrument. And, and uh, my friend Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory has written some fantastic pieces about this. Um, you know, it's become about the price. Uh, you can't have a store of value that drops 20% on the tweet right. of, a, of a crazy billionaire, right? That's not a store of value. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what argument you want to make against that. It, it, it's just not a store of value. There's no way gold is dropping 20% because Elon Musk tweeted, you know, sell gold by Bitcoin. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so, you know, when you get into that space, you find yourself arguing with people for no reason, because there's no point. The, 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 the Bitcoin evangelists are not going to change their minds. The Bitcoin haters are not going to change their minds. And the, big, the only people who will change their minds are the people who are in Bitcoin, not because they appreciate it, its, its structure or, or, or the, the simplicity, the elegance of its design, but they appreciate the price going up. Those people will change their mind after days like we've seen today. Um, because they, they were, you know, all buying at 55,000. They've lost 20% of their money and they don't know why and they don't understand it because Bitcoin's only supposed to go up. So, you know, I, I, I try and spend as little of my time talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as possible because I just don't right. think there is any space for rational discussion. For adding, yeah. Okay. And, and I just, I just, I'd, I'd rather not sure. get involved in mudslinging from both directions. Like, you know, I have my views yeah. on it, but. No, that's fine, Grant. So listen, let's let's turn to a topic that's a little more dear to your heart that you've spent a lot of time thinking about is gold. Uh, and I want to tie that to the idea of the dollar as a global reserve currency and possible risks to that status. Yeah, well, look, I mean, Stan Druckermiller came out yesterday in an interview, which I think was on uh, CNBC, CNBC, I'm pretty sure it was on yeah. CNBC. Yeah. And, you know, he basically said that he, he saw the, the US dollar losing its reserve currency status within the next, uh, I think, what did he say, by the end of the decade, 15. the next 15 years? Yeah, I think so. Fifteen years, um, which is a remarkable statement from someone like from someone like Stan. You know, I mean, he's he's one of the preeminent investors of his generation, saying something like that. And and what's interesting 
is you know, there are there are plenty of people, myself included, who've talked about this idea, but it's interesting what having someone with the with the the intellectual heft of Stan Druckenmiller say that does for the idea. You know, it, it suddenly makes it viable in a lot more people's minds than if I were to say it, right? And quite rightly so. Um, but uh, you know, gold like Bitcoin there are evangelists in the gold space and you know i engage with them as much as i engage with the with the bitcoin evangelists which is say as little as possible but yeah. i think i think that the the advantage gold has over bitcoin and forget price for right now is that we have a very good understanding of how gold will behave in inflationary environments in deflationary environments in stagflationary environments in bull markets and bear markets we kind of know we've got thousands of years of history and and so you can if you want to use gold as your liquid reserve asset you have a pretty good idea of how it will behave over the long term you, you don't know and, and right now there are plenty of things that will make you scratch your head why isn't gold doing this why isn't gold doing that yeah. but it's not going to zero it's not going to fall 20 percent in a day sure because of a tweet it's sure. just not going to do that so so i think you know the advantage bitcoin has had over gold recently has been its price has gone up a lot more and that's been enough for many many people mm -hmm. but the advantage i think gold has over bitcoin in the long run is is history it's it's far reduced volatility and the fact that it is truly off the grid um yep. you know you 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 can hold gold off the grid um and out of the financial system and not require the kind of things you require that Bitcoin dictate in order to be able to use it. So, you know, look, you, you can make the case for one or the other. It's purely down to personal preference. My mm. personal preference is for gold over Bitcoin. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm not trying yeah. to persuade anybody to do otherwise. I'm simply sure. telling you why I think gold is a, makes yeah. sense. And I, that's what I tend to try and do is explain why I think it makes sense. Not yeah. you should buy it or here's the where the price is going. Because I think that's a, a and, spurious and thing to get into. Is the underlying logic for both of those a drunken sailor, fiscal spending, borrowed money, government handouts, can't ratchet in or live within a budget logic? I, look, I think I think for gold, absolutely, that that is the underlying logic, and I think the underpinning of Bitcoin is very similar. Yes. But again, that has been superseded by number go up. You know, these three word memes that the, that the Bitcoinistas like to push out there, Bitcoin has become a lot more about the numbers going up. And, and, and oh, look, the, 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 the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin evangelists, and, look, and I'm not knocking, there are some really smart guys out there. You know, the, the Robert Breedloves of the world uh, are very gifted communicators, safety, all these guys, they're, they're very gifted communicators. And, and what they talk about, there's an awful lot of truth to it. Mm -hmm. But that, is they're desperately trying to get the narrative back yeah. to that. But the reality is it's about the number going up right now. And, and even though they may be right, that's not what has it or what had it trading up near $60,000. It wasn't an inflation hedge that had it trading at $60,000. Yeah. It was price appreciation. Got it. Yep. No, I appreciate that. Um, all right. So one of the questions was uh, about financial media platforms. So I'm going to ask this. Uh, uh, since are financial media platforms like Real Vision or Zero Hedge or others for that matter, indirectly responsible or contributing to investor herd behavior and groupthink? Meaning, you know, every, everyone, who, there's a lot of people who will sort of tune into Real Vision and think question. that they're getting unique ideas. But when there's a lot of them, 
they're not so unique then, right? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I, I think I know the motivations for, for starting Real Vision, right? We went out and our, and our plan was very simple. Let's find smart people and let's talk to them. Yeah. And that was literally it. We did. We had no agenda. Uh, we had no slant on it. We just wanted to get smart people and talk to them. And, and you know, in those early days, we would ask people if, if you know, they'd be happy doing an interview with us. And, uh, you know, every time I went to talk to them, I had, I had plenty of people say, look, can you send me the questions of answers? And I don't have a set of questions of answers. I just want yeah. to talk to you. I, this is not a Q&A. I want a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I never went in there with anything other than I'm interested in what this guy has to say. Let, let's hear it. Now, we, we got a lot of criticism uh, early on that oh, everything was bearish and you, you only find bears. And I, I found that interesting because you know, I knew from the inside that we had never, ever gone out to try and find bears. We went out to find smart people, successful people, successful investors. And to me, the fact that the majority of them seemed bearish was actually a very important and useful piece of information. But I guess from the outside, look, there's, there's a natural cynicism, I think, from the outside. And we saw it in the comments. Um, people would say, oh, yeah, this is just a bear fest. This is just a bear fest. There's nothing you can do about that. You know, and from yep. the inside, you know how this was made and you know how we got these people onto the platform and, and why they were there. But from the outside, I can understand why people with a bullish bent would think, oh, it's all, it's all bear porn and I don't want to listen to it. And people with a, with a bearish slant would think that this is confirmation bias. This is great. There's nothing yeah. you can do about that. You know, all you can really do is present the information you can in, in the most unbiased way possible. And really that just stems from, look, I don't care if you're bullish or bearish, you're smart. And I want to hear what you have to say. And that's, that's where we went with that. Um, I, look, I've seen, I've seen other platforms go down that road. You know, I, th I think zero hedge, which again, in the very early days was, um, was 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 a very useful and very uh insightful place to get non-mainstream thinking but you could see that model change when it became an advertising revenue driven model like everything that goes that way it it it, it ends up relying on clicks for its yeah. revenue and how do you get clicks well you come up with the most dramatic headlines you can and the you know what 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 drives clicks more and, and a lot of the time it's 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 doom it's it's that stuff right so i i see how that how that goes and look and even real vision i think you know real vision has now gone down the crypto road and they've they've kind of nailed their flags to, to that mast and along with that come comes more of an editorial yep. bent than real vision's ever had um, you know, there is a there is a very positive editorial bent towards crypto. Now, you know, I, I, I don't watch enough of the crypto content to, to know if they have, you know, crypto bears on explaining the bear case of crypto, I, I would hope so. Mm -hmm. But I think I think crypto is is different in that, as we've said before, it's such a polarizing subject, and you tend to get very strong opinions. So if you're going yeah. down the bullish road on crypto, and, and from an editorial level, you believe it to be the future, then it's, it's only natural that you are going to engage with yeah. people who have yeah. that slant. So I, I don't think it's anything you can guarantee to guard against uh, if you're in the media, which is another reason why you know, I am happy doing my own 
work again because I, yeah my my motivations i don't have to justify them to anybody i'm just interested and yeah. people think i'm bearish in a lot of things and that's absolutely fine but i i yeah. try to be um you know unbiased and and put opinions out there that could prove to be right or wrong but there's there's an honesty and an, an intellectual rigor behind them that i'm comfortable with no look great i totally agree i mean part of the reason why i've been on my own is for that same reason and you know one of the things i loved about i think i did a real vision interview with you and came in geez it must have been 2014 maybe it was early 15 something like that and what i loved about it was we just sat and talked like we just talked, we talked about the world. Yeah. We talked about what I'd written in my book. We talked about frameworks for thinking about it. We talked about navigating uncertainty. It was just great. Right. I mean, there's no agenda, which was fabulous. So, yeah. um, so, um, all right. So we're basically running out of time here, but I, I want to squeeze in one last question that came in here and I'm going to summarize it because it's very long, <laughs> okay. um, but fiscal super cycle spending Yes, it's got some downdrafts. Yes, it generates some risks. But could this not unlock a huge developmental progress leap on the part of the United States? Is not like a replenishment of infrastructure, an investment in future technologies, you know, to reigniting a space race to get STEM uh, excitement going again in this country? Um, you know, just isn't this exactly the kind of time where you'd want to have big fiscal spending, even if it's deficit? We have the runway. We are the global reserve currency. And even if Stan's right and you only got 15 years left, 15 years is a long time. You can make a lot of progress in that window. And we don't really have constraints on the dollar right now. What's the alternative? So anyway, that's my summary of what came in. Well, I think it's a lot better. If you, you can read the whole thing in the chat later. But um, you know, that's the essence of the question, which is, why shouldn't we just spend money like there's no tomorrow to help make for a much better tomorrow? Well, you, you said, could it be something that unlocks the key to you know great improvement? And I would say it had better because they're going to do it, right? They're going to they're yeah. going to do this. This is this is where we're going. So it becomes less of a question of could it be this and could it be that? It's a question of okay, what's going to happen now? Because yeah. uh, it's where we're going now. The infrastructure in the US. Is frankly horrendous. I mean, the, the 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 freeway system needs an awful lot of money spent. The airports are yep. dreadful compared to you know having lived in Asia for so long, and been flying in and out of um, Cheplapcock in Hong Kong for a number of years, and and uh, Changi in Singapore. You know, when you land at JFK or you fly out of LaGuardia or or into LAX, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's staggering how how poor they are. So look, the U.S. has the advantage of having an awful lot of infrastructure to upgrade. Um, and, and they're going to do it. Now, it's going to require political consensus to get a lot of stuff done, which, look, they should be able to get consensus for this. They should be able to do it. Um, who knows? Again, that polarization yeah. problem bleeds into politics and is, is perhaps yeah. going, to, going to create headwinds. Um, but, it, but it does, as you said, require an incredible amount of deficit spending. Um, right now, there are no signs that the world won't fund that deficit spending or at least a, a decent portion of it. But as the Fed has to monetize more and more of that, again, you know, just like those books about inflation, the tipping points come really, really fast. Yeah. And, um, and, and so that's the thing you need to watch out for. They will spend on infrastructure. It will improve things. It will take a long time to do this stuff. You're not going to suddenly see in two years 
US infrastructure is upgraded. So this is a, a long-term yeah. uh, commitment to, to massive deficit spending. And once you make those long-term commitments, you better hope that uh, the, the foreigners show up to the bond auctions. Um, and they'll yeah. have to show up in bigger numbers than they are today because they're declining and the Fed is, is having to monetize that. And you know, it, it, it happens really quickly. Again, so, somewhere out there, there's a line in the sand where the Fed monetizes X percent and it's okay. They yeah. up it by three or four percent, and suddenly, no. So, yeah. look, as I said, the answer is it better. It better had unlocked that key, yeah. future and it better do it in the next five to ten years. Well, it's also, and we're not going to have time to get through it now. But like, you factor in some possibility of inflation in that process, and then the the appetite at that rate. Uh, and what the implications are for the fiscal budget getting worse because rates go up and the debt service and debt takes even more out of it, et cetera. And so I'm just going to end, uh, Grant, with one little tidbit of news that just popped up on my phone as breaking news um, that might give more ammunition to your inflation camp. Amazon hiring 75,000 workers offering a $1,000 signing bonus in many locations. There you go. There's $75 million thrown in the pot you know um spending power it's, it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be interesting to see oh. Oh. i guess how how quickly or how much they struggle to find those seventy five thousand workers we were all maybe sitting at home getting paid by the government to, to play Xbox. yeah yeah so all right well grant we could go on for another hour and uh, i'm sure you and i'll have another conversation at some point soon but but thank okay. you for joining me really enjoyed this so thanks you're welcome any, any time always a delight to talk to you okay thanks grant Thanks, everybody, for joining. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 